0: This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9 Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. In your new book, The Dark Side, the inside story of how the war on terror Turned into a war on American ideals, our guest today, Jane Mayer, chronicles how the Bush administration made terrible decisions in the pursuit of terrorists around the world, decisions that not only violated the Constitution, but also hampered the pursuit of al-Qaeda. Mayer is the co-author of two best-selling and critically acclaimed narrative nonfiction books, Landslide and Strange Justice. She is currently a Washington-based investigative journalist for The New Yorker, Jane Mayer, welcome to Weekly Signals.
1: Thanks, glad to be with you.
0: How are you today? I'm good. How's Philadelphia treating you?
1: You know, so far so good. It's kind of hot here. I bet it's nicer in California. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I couldn't say. It's it's a little bit foggy where we are, oh, but it, it's it's it'll clear up and oh we'll, darn. and we'll just uh, <laughs> we'll just be so much better than Philadelphia no. by <laughs> the end of the day. Uh. <laughs> uh, so, so tell us, how is what's the genesis of the book? How is it that you got uh, into the Dark Side.
1: Into the Dark Side. Yeah. You know, I, I, it, was, um, it, it started with a story that I, I'd heard about, Renditions, which are this uh, CIA program in which the United States uh, basically snatches terror suspects around the world and picks them up off the streets um, and puts them on a private jet and takes them to a dungeon someplace to yes. be questioned. And basically... It seemed, as I was reporting about it, so phenomenal and so, so basically un-American that there would be United States officials in our government whose job it was to wear black hoods and, and uh, ski masks and black outfits that couldn't be ripped and, and to grab people and take them into places where their clothes were cut off of them and they were then forcibly sedated and taken away outside of the reach of the law. Maybe, possibly, forever. That I, I basically just was so surprised by it. It Seemed like a Robert Ludlum novel, frankly. Yes. I, I That I began asking more questions, and and so the book is the the summation of of, of a number of years of r- stories that I've done on this subject. And part of what really wanted and made me want to tell the story in a book form was that. The part that wasn't being told in my stories was about the people fighting back inside the American government. There was a second front of the war on terror, and it was there were a lot of really great people, I thought, who were inside the Bush administration, outside the Bush administration, in the military, in the FBI especially. They were basically just upstanding, regular American people, a number of them were lawyers, who... And many were conservatives who simply said, "When they heard about these programs, we don 't want to have anything to do with it. We think you need to stop it. It might be criminal um and it's whatever it is, we're better than that, and we don't want to imitate what our enemies are doing and They also argued strenuously that it was hurting us in ways that that w- w- would come back to haunt us so so those were the people whose stories I wanted to tell in the book. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, is there anyone in particular that stands out among them as being someone who stood up to uh, to our policy of torture?
1: Oh, gosh, there are many of them. It, be, it began really with the military people, and they're the, the military leaders called JAGs, who are the lawyers in the military, and they're kind of double experts. They know military law, and they know um, regular criminal law, and they were very early on to say, this, this, this system that you're setting up is outside... The norms of law and also outside of American traditions. There was a top military lawyer for the Navy named Alberto Mora, who's just a fantastic person. And he's a Cuban immigrant, his family were, who came to America. And um, he truthfully believed that the Bill of Rights and the Constitution were, meant something serious. And he felt that having heard about more tyr- tyrannical governments, like Cuba's, and his family had also been suffered in um, some of his relatives in Hungary during the Soviet days. He just he thought that this was completely wrong, and that that our government is not supposed to be one that inflicts purposely inflicts cruelty and even torture on people, and that it it was just a violation of everything that the country was founded on. So he he. Pitched in quite early when he started getting information about what was going on down in Guantanamo and tried to put on the brakes. And he fights a very valiant fight inside. The Pentagon about it there are also FBI agents there's a wonderful FBI agent, Jack Cloonan, and another one named Dan Coleman. Dan Coleman talks about how you know he doesn't they, did, they didn't want to follow policies that were made up by lawyers in Washington as they called them the suits because they knew they'd seen this movie before and they knew that they were going to get stuck getting in trouble if they did these things and 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 Coleman also says basically, you know, what are we, the Huns? Are we going to just stop start killing people when they won't talk? And he says, you know, if you strip people of their clothes and you make them cold, they'll tell you anything. They won't give you good information. And he says, besides which, you lose your soul. And and, and he wasn't willing to do that. So they they spoke up early on. And finally, there are a number of lawyers in the Bush administration. There's some incredible scenes with the lawyers trying to work behind the, the back of Vice President Cheney to try to see if they can't, closed down the CIA's prison program and, and basically also put the country back on a more solid legal footing on in terms of interrogations. And most of them had to leave the government after they, they made, you know, major efforts to fix things. And some of them really did fix things to some extent. I mean, things are better now than they were before in the beginning, right after 9-11. But there was a, a price to pay, but these guys, are, I think, are really admirable.
2: Well, I want to back up. Um because I think we need to establish a a couple of uh, the basic facts here. Uh, Well, first of all, there was a memo that came out last week. We were just talking about it in the news segment uh, that outlined uh, the techniques that were being used by the United States in the aftermath of 9-11 in in the interrogation of so-called enemy combatants. Uh, Was this the memo that you had spoken of uh, in previous interviews about the memo that – is this the memo that you you were talking about when you said – there is one that exists that details the actual techniques used
1: well i mean there's still one that hasn't come out that details the actual techniques okay. um that has you know it's it's like a, a a menu of all the things you can do and for how long you can do it okay. what what did come out though was interesting was um something that it's highly redacted so it's a bit hard to read the ACLU got it but um right. it's got um it's certainly, confirmation there that waterboarding was among the techniques that they anticipated using and did use, and it it also has shows you again the legal reasoning that was. Uh, Run up by John Yu and others in the Office of Legal Counsel who were working closely with Cheney. Was that
2: Addington, David Addington?
1: David Addington, in particular, who was Cheney's lawyer. Um, But what, I mean, not that his name is on this particular memo. I don't want anybody to draw the wrong conclusion there. But but what what the memo shows is that they were looking for ways to, to argue that what they were doing was not criminal. Very openly it, it was clearly on their mind and and so they're inventing loopholes and what what the, this particular memo shows is one loophole that they came up with was to argue that if you tortured somebody, but your intent was not just to cause pain, it was to for instance maybe get information, then you could argue that you, your intent was innocent, and therefore it was not torture and not a crime. Of course, you know, I mean, most torture does take place in, in commission of trying to get something out of someone. So it, 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 it was a bit of sophistry, but that does reflect, I think, the mindset
2: well, well doesn't, doesn't a lot of this argument sort of trickle down from the ability of the administration to be able to designate someone as an enemy combatant and therefore put them kind of beyond the pale of what was considered established law? Was, isn't a lot of this come back to that, that they could designate people who were not prisoners of war, who weren't civilians, who were something in a gray area, and then you could start to sort of come up with a whole body of rationale for what Completely. they did.
1: Completely. I mean, under under all pre all the criminal codes that existed before nine eleven, these these actions would have been crimes. I mean, you cannot in in U.S. criminal law, Waterboard. A suspect to make them talk, obviously, and you can also not do it under the Uniform Code of Military Justice or under the Geneva Conventions. There, there are existing codes of law that, under all of which, these 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 actions would be criminal. But what the Bush administration decided very soon after 9/11 was that terror suspects would no longer have any of the rights of any of the known existing systems of law. They took them outside the the law and put them in um, what a law lord in in England famously described as a a legal black hole. And then they made up their own rules for what Treatment was allowable,
2: so that really was the trick here, if you will, if that's the right way to <laughs> phrase it. But that's well—that's the was beginning
1: the r- of that is the beginning of the problem, and and and, and so it, and they they created an ad hoc legal system, which we're still watching down in Guantanamo. And you know once so so definitely that is you know the the problem before nine eleven detainees and who were i mean uh, prisoners who were terror suspects were treated as as criminals, and most of the world still treats terrorists as criminals
2: right now isn't aren't our signatures uh, we're signatories to the geneva convention and, and a a whole slew of uh international rights uh, treaties aren 't those the supreme law of our land as well as the rest of the world, aren't those the preeminent sort of laws that we're supposed to abide by?
1: Well, I mean, what was argued during the Early days right after nine eleven and I tried to sort of paint the, the scene in, in in the dark side, what I was trying to do was put the whole story together mm-hmm. so people can really finally get it mm-hmm. um, it, it was ve- it's a very it 's been complicated and it 's come to us out of order, and it really is an unbelievable story so I just wanted to mm-hmm. tell it in a straight way and basically. They they decided the lawyers inside the Bush administration at the top level, not all of them, because the State Department lawyers were completely against this, but a small faction of very extreme lawyers, many of whom were already critical of international law, decided that terror suspects were outside of the, not covered by the Geneva Conventions. Al Qaeda was not, um, because they were considered not. Uh, you know, prisoners of war, well, they, not not um, not soldiers in some kind of war that we recognized as legal. They were illegal enemy combatants was the category that they yeah. described them as. And um, and so once they did that, then they, it's, they say that they still abide by the Geneva Conventions, but what they've done is they've limited the reach of the conventions not to cover the population that, that we were fighting with.
2: We're speaking with Jane Mayer. The book is The Dark Side, the inside story of how the war on terror turned... Uh, turned into a war on American ideals. I'm, what I, I'm the, re, the line of my questioning has to do with sort of establishing that there isn't much doubt in this memo that you, you spoke of earlier in which almost everything else was redacted except for waterboarding, which w- leads one to believe or w- one to wonder what <laughs> – what else, if they admit to waterboarding in this memo, what else is being being done? That there's no doubt that what they were doing was trying to figure out a way to torture people, and maybe you don't want to say this out loud, to torture people and still be able to have some legal claim, some tenuous legal claim that it isn't.
1: I mean, torture, not torture, I guess it's not worth getting tangled up in this yeah. semantic game. They wanted to hurt people right. and, and, and put them in pain and put them in psychic pain, too. Um, so, yes, that, that is what that memo was doing. And what is it not describing? I mean, of course, this has been, for a reporter, what the challenge has been all the way along through this is to figure out, what don't you know? And and, uh, and at every turn there have been surprises, I have to say, turning over the rocks and looking what's underneath them. But there's plenty more that we still don't know. There are many memos we haven't seen. And um, But what you do know, and what I was told over and over again and is in this book, is that waterboarding... Is only one of a panoply of techniques that were used to break people down, and in some ways, I was told by a number of people who who are familiar with the whole program that it's a bit of a of, of a distraction to get hung up completely on it, because what really made this program f- f- stunning in the view of of investigators who've looked into it from Europe and in few critics that are in this country was it 's the, the The scope and intensity of all of the techniques which were applied on prisoners at once so that it was it, 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 they they did so many things to these prisoners in so many different ways at the same time that it was just plain overwhelming and harrowing according to the people that i interviewed people you know and and you know unfortunately i don 't have access to the to the interrogation logs or anything like that. So it's very difficult to check. But I can tell you that in the CIA program, everything that was done was approved from the very top of our government. Mm. They had almost like a game of Mother May I going on, where if you were going to slap a detainee, you had to check with Langley where the CIA headquarters was, even if you were halfway around the world. If you were going to give them more than the sleep deprivation hours that were approved, you had to get approval for more hours of it. Everything was very controlled, very... Very purposeful. And, um, you know, I, I was just told by a, a, a European investigator it was the most sophisticated torture program the world's ever seen.
2: It, it does belie this idea that's been floated that, uh, as uh, Donald Rumsfeld said about Abu Ghraib there was a few rotten apples or bad apples that were involved.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, you know, of course, he was talking not about the CIA but about the military and the programs are slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um but and and the legal reasoning behind them is slightly different, but they they're 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 both at the root based on the same techniques from the same prog- secret program in the United States military and far from being just freelancing of 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 rotten apples, there is actual playbook for the Torture that took place in these programs, and it comes out of a program called the SEER program, which is a training program, a secret training program for the Special Forces. Um, SEER is an acronym that stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And uh, it's a program that is modeled on communist torture techniques that we as Americans feared our own servicemen might be subjected to if they were taken captive. And the special techniques are applied to have the servicemen practice how they could survive under these horrible conditions. And what happened after 9-11 was that the government turned for advice to the people who ran this program. And instead of using it as a defensive program as it had been before. It became an offensive program, and we started actually reverse engineering SEER, as they describe it, and using the the world's worst techniques, most you know immoral techniques, as America's own techniques.
0: We're speaking with Jane Mayer. The book is The Dark Side. And let's get back to the heroes of the story again, people like Alberto Mora. Uh, what kind of resistance did they come come up against and and specifically talk about Dick Cheney a
1: bit well, there was a great sense that uh, that of intimidation that seemed to emanate from cheney 's office I mean in one case there 's a story in the in the book about uh, a young lawyer named Matthew Waxman who uh, is the, the in charge of the detainee program in the Pentagon, and he has the temerity to suggest somewhere years on into Guantanamo that maybe it's time to at least take another look at the Geneva Conventions and see whether maybe the standards for humane treatment that are spelled out in them could be something that America could live up to again and he he actually gets he's a very smart guy, he's now a professor of law at Columbia, he gets all of the um, heads of the services in the military on board on this almost, but but when the vice president's office hears that Geneva is being pushed again as as an ideal that America could live up to Matt Waxman is is summoned over to the vice president's office where David Addington who's the lawyer for the vice president and Scooter Libby who's another was the chief of staff at the time for the vice president um berate him and tell him that what he's talking about is an abomination and he's you know just soundly humiliated and 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 Um, basically punished for it. He soon after leaves the job at the Pentagon. There was a sense of great intimidation. This is also felt by lawyers in the Justice Department who tried to um, take back the torture memos on which the program was based. One lawyer in particular, Jack Goldsmith, who's now a professor of law at Harvard, took a close look at this memo and found it Completely shoddy, um, and and said that it was not based on the proper reading of the law, and that there were actually no precedents for much of what was in it. And so he tried to replace it with one that he thought would be more reasonable. And in doing so, he also incurred the wrath of the vice president's office in the person of David Addington, the vice president's lawyer, who who just bullied and berated him, and uh, hum, you know humiliated him in meetings. And it got so bad that. He began to feel, along with another lawyer at the Justice Department, a very top lawyer, James Comey, the number two lawyer in the department. The two of them felt that they were almost they were being, in, in possibly in physical danger, or it, or being surveilled or or wiretapped. They they began to talk in codes because they were so afraid that someone was going to stop them as they tried to basically withdraw the torture memo and replace it with something that was, in their view legitimate.
2: And isn't uh, James Comey, he's the uh, uh, Deputy District, uh, Deputy U.S. Uh, attorney General. And he's the who, Deputy
1: uh, Attorney General, the number two who's, who's, lawyer in the Justice Department. He's he's left since, and he actually right. gave a, 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 a truly remarkable going-away speech, where he didn't name any names, but he said and that people who are cynical about Washington would be shocked to see the extent that people went to in the government to stand up for the rule of law in America, mm-hmm. that they risked their own careers, and obviously one of those careers was his own.
2: Well, he, he stood up to that uh, famous or infamous visit uh, to John Ash- Ashcroft's uh, hospital room when, uh, was it Gonzalez and Addington, I believe, were the ones, no, no, I'm sorry, the chief of staff, Bolton, came to try and extend the uh, surveillance, uh, the, the U.S. surveillance uh, wiretapping. It,
1: um, yes, you're right, and it was it was um, both uh, Jim Comey, the deputy attorney general at that point, and um, again Jack Goldsmith, yeah. who had they're they're their, their smart lawyers, they're Republican lawyers, they're conservatives, yeah. but they basically believe that the law is the law and not just an instrument to further political ends, mm-hmm. and they they thought that the NSA program. As, as it had been designed, mostly by Addington, it was really his baby, that it was I- illegal. I mm. mean, there's a famous exchange that took place in which Comey says, when he looks at the legal work that, that was trying to justify the wiretaps, he says, you know, no lawyer would buy this. And Addington says, it's taking place in the White House, well, I'm a lawyer and I buy it. And Comey then retorts, no good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's about it. Well, we're speaking with Jane Mayer. The book is "The Dark Side," and you've you've had a good deal of success with this book, and you've been all on the talk shows. You must be exhausted. Have well, they been treating I mean, you I'm, right? You
1: know, after spending so many years trying to figure out what the truth was that's behind this, you know that. Dark side chain talked about it a war taking place in the shadows. Mm. It's totally gratifying that good. people are interested and that people are reading it i you know so I feel really good. it's what a writer wants is yeah. people to read their work.
0: do you think that this would have been as successful, say two years ago
1: no i i don't i mean it's it's interesting the 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 amount of public interest has ebbed and flowed over and over again on this subject and and right now I think. You know, for a variety of reasons, people are finally thinking. Seven years afterwards, huh? Was this such a good thing? They're taking a second look at it. Maybe it's because we're in the midst of a presidential election. Yeah.
2: Do you have a sense that uh, justice will be uh, eventually done uh, in in terms of the people who may will say we'll give them the benefit of the doubt may have been perpetrating a uh, an illegal operation within the U.S. government? Do you... I
1: I just don't know. I mean, the truth is that at this point, even. Um, there are a number of people who were innocent who got ca- taken captive in this program by the United States, and and a couple of them have tried to get into the United States courts to get some kind of... Um, um, you know, bring civil damages. There's there's Khalid El Masri, who is a, a car dealer in Germany, who was, he was renditioned by mistake by the CIA and kept in a dungeon in Afghanistan under just putrid conditions for, the, for months and months. And he was not able to get any kind of hearing in a U.S. court because the judges were convinced by the Bush administration that just even raising the question of what happened to him and talking about rendition in an open court would be a violation of our national security, Mm -hmm. which is kind of ironic, given that there's actually a Hollywood movie called Rendition, Mm -hmm. so everybody in the country knows about it by now who's interested in it. Um, So I I, I don't see the the courts as particularly open to these things. Um, The same with is a a Canadian engineer who was um, the United States shipped off to Syria, where he was just brutally tortured for a year and and after a year of it, even Syria, which is not known for coddling terrorists, came to the conclusion that he knew nothing and 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 was not a terrorist and they They finally let him go because his wife was waging a major campaign to get him out but the united states has has he has tried to sue the united states he 's not even allowed in the United States at this point still in in he 's on our watch list still, whereas in Canada. You know, the Canadians have paid him, I don't know, something like $10 million in, in reparations for what they put him through by mistake. Wow. So I, I, I don't, you know, we're, we're still in the grip of this thing.
2: Well, the wheels of, of justice do grind slowly, but they do grind on, and we, we hope that some justice is brought to all this. Jane Meir, I want to thank you so much for being here on uh, Weekly Signals. The book is The Dark Side.
1: Great to be with you. Thanks so much.
0: To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan
2: Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar, And this is Weekly Signals.